All right. Here we go. Quiet. Roll up. Hello, and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and we slaughter them for your enjoyment. (laughs) Seated across the microphone from me, making a noise that is absolutely despicable, is Film Buff Online Editor-in-Chief, Mr. Richard Dries. And seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online Contributing Editor and person who's kind of giving away one of the films we're going to be talking about today. (laughs) Natasha Bogutsky. Natasha Wednesday Bogutsky, I say. (laughs) Are you full of woe today? Always. (laughs) It makes me pleased with life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, yes, we are going to talk about the new Netflix series Wednesday, which just dropped, which is... I think tipping our hat here a little bit. Fantastic. We're also going to be talking about Miracle on 34th Street, so prepare for... An insane uh, <laughs> shifting of gears into a segue that you, we've ever done. Hey, you said we couldn't segue last week during our episode, and I found a most beautiful yes, segue. Yes, So maybe we'll find something wonderful here. I, I would love to. Um, <laughs> but uh, before that, though, I did kind of want to just bring up um, the passing of Irene Cara, which happened... Uh, uh, two days ago, as of this recording, on the uh, 25th. She's probably best known for um, her early 80s work, uh, appearing in the movie Fame and singing mm-hmm. the title track there, uh, the great uh, Alan Parker. Yeah, Alan Parker film. And then um, just a couple of years later, she co-wrote and sang the theme to Flashdance, What yep. a Feeling. Um, which was ubiquitous on the radio for for a good while. Oh yes, it was for a while. I yes. still hear it regularly. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's a poppy song. It's an Oscar winner. Yeah, I know. It's it's amazing because I think she might be the only person who won an Oscar for writing or co-writing the song and a Grammy for best female vocal performance hmm. that year. Um, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head who might have that uh, double double whammy and if there is she might be the first she was also the um she's only the second black woman to have won an academy award after hattie mcdaniel from uh gone with the wind in 1939 so it took 40 years basically for another uh black woman performer to win an academy award which i think they're still struggling to get that kind of representation in the Oscars even now, mm-hmm. even though we have made great strides. Uh, but when you look back at that, and now we're 40 years away from when she won it, yeah, it's it does kind of put all of that into a perspective, and she becomes that focal point in between 1940, when Hattie McDaniel won, and what's kind of happening now in the last couple of years. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I don't think she really had as strong a career for the rest of um, her time in film. Um, she had a couple more hits uh, in the song, um, in the songs, in the, on the radio uh, with her music. Um, she was in things like DC Cab, which is a comedy with um, Mr. T. <laughs> uh, that's has its fans. It's not a great comedy, but you know, 
among among people my age, you know, if if you watched a lot of stuff that you rented in like junior high and high school from the <laughs> from the video store, or you watched a lot of HBO, DC Cab was one of those films that was in constant rotation. I'd never even heard of it oh, until just now. See? Um yeah, she was also in like movies like City Heat. Uh, nope. <laughs> and thinking of Sister Sister, not the TV show, but it was an actual. There was an actual movie not based on the TV show. I saw or, the TV show. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, um, you know, it was she was, was kind of just nice knowing that she was out there, you know, living a life that was probably pretty good, and. Um, you know, like I said, a touchstone in uh, the history of the Oscars and the history of film and um, in the history of uh, black performers in uh, the movie industry, you know, uh, and she's now gone. But we will remember her. Thank you for everything you gave us. Aaron. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think, was there anything else really that jumped out at you in the news? <laughs> only the biggest regeneration in film business in a long time oh yeah that's right <laughs> how did you forget about that oh my gosh i I'm, I'm still flabbergasted by it a week almost a week later we are of course talking about bob chapek getting the boot from disney and the disney board bringing back uh bob Iger. The the man, the myth, the legend. He literally got the Doctor Who treatment. <laughs> Russell T. Davies and David Tennant are back. So that should just show you how much in the shooter Disney might need some help. <laughs> and Iger wasn't there, what, 18 months? Um, mm-hmm. it, it was amazing. Um, I, and we don't talk about like a lot of the geeky business side stuff. Um, but Bob Chapek was a lifelong Disney guy, rose to the head of parks, you know, so he ran all the theme parks. Mm -hmm. And then when um, Bob Iger was getting ready to leave, they announced Chapek as his successor. I kind of was like, wait a minute. I know some people who are like Disney park fans. There are fans, you know, who just like, we love the Disney parks and they go multiple times a year. Oh, I know some of those too. And um, so I reached out to uh, one of them who I went to college with, uh, she actually lives down in Georgia, so it's not too hard for her to get to Orlando. Yeah. And she was actually in town for something, and we were having dinner. And I asked her, I was like, so what can you tell me? What do the park fans think of Bob Chapek's uh, stewardship of the theme parks? And uh, she didn't get into a lot of details, but she was not a fan. We'll say that. <laughs> and, really? Uh, yeah. And I, it kind of matched what a little bit of buzz I had been hearing, like, on social medias and stuff like that. And when he came in, like, right away, he screwed things up with Scarlett Johansson and Black Widow. He was pushing to get all the Pixar stuff, you know, as just direct to uh, Disney+, Plus, which pissed off all of uh, Pixar, basically. Um, and, you know, th- those were, like, two of his first big mistakes out of the box. Uh, and... The Scarlett Johansson thing is just because he had no relationships with talent. And the Pixar thing, same reason. No relationships with talent. And he didn't strive to make relationships with talent. And then, of course, um, on the political side, when uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida started the Don't Say Gay thing, Mm. um, usually Disney, which has a lot of gay employees, a lot of LGBTQ employees at the parks in um, 
you know, in the studios, everywhere. Um, he didn't speak up. And and the employees felt betrayed, betrayed left out in the cold. Um, so... Disney stock has been sliding down. I know. Bit. I jumped in a little bit to to uh, <laughs> buy some because I knew it would pop back up. So I'm oh, just God, catching yeah. that low wave right now. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, it did it did pop like the Monday after that was announced. That's only been like a week, week and a half. Um, so, yeah, it's, it happened like two days after we recorded our last episode or dropped the last episode. I think. And um, I'm curious to see how my stock is. <laughs> no, I just want to mm-hmm. see how it's changed since before that to to now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has not changed all okay. that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, then again, he hasn't had time to do anything really yet. I think we're going to start seeing changes announced probably. There's probably going to be like some behind the scenes shuffling and we're going to start seeing changes being announced probably in the new year. Um, now, Iger is back for two years. They made it very clear that it's a um, a temporary position. Yeah. He's going to write the ship from where it was listing. He's going to train, train a, a successor. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which I think is uh, smart. Very smart. Yeah. One of the other things Chapek did was he created like this group of executives and you're at Disney, and you make something. You make, you know, a movie. Mm-hmm. And this group of executives are the ones who decide, well, we'll put it in theaters. Yeah, we're going to throw it on Disney+. Plus. It's never clear from the outset. And even people like Kevin Feige at Marvel was subservient to this thing. And Kevin Feige is one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. Yes. I mean... How many billions, with a B, has he generated for Disney? Not just from the films, Mm -hmm. but from merchandising for the films, from theme park attractions for the films, based on the films, I'm I'm curious to to work those numbers, Uh, by the way. (laughs) I would say it's probably at least 10 to 15 billion. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure the numbers are out there on, like, The Hollywood Reporter or something like that. They've probably mentioned that somewhere along the way. So, yeah, so even to make somebody like Kevin Feige subservient to this group who feels, eh, we're just going to throw it on Disney+, Plus, which happened with, okay, Soul, I think, was an exception because we were early in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But there were some other things, and, you know, other things out of Disney Animation Studios, too, like Encanto. Encanto went for, like, it it had a very small theatrical run. It did, but we were also a little post pandemic at that time and um honest yeah bob whatever his name was was not the <laughs> chapek chapek was not the best we're already choice. forgetting him good yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't run things very well but nope. um i will say this he came in at a very turbulent time in the film industry one of the most turbulent it may have ever had which was post pandemic through the pandemic post pandemic it's it's not been easy for anyone and i think there's st- i think all the studios are still trying to find their footing find how the audience is reacting to films in the cinema now um 
and kind of try to find new ways to market their their films to a wider crowd. Some have streaming services. Some most do not. Um, I saw a thing the other day where it said, you know, some of the best movies of the year: Banshees of Inisherin, Tar. Um, she said so on and so forth are not finding crowds at the cinema. No. When I saw She Said last week. Opening night. Opening night. I was literally, opening night, Friday night, 7 o'clock show, I was literally the only person in the theater. And it was in one of the bigger rooms, too, at the at the Cineplex I mm. went to. So that was like, that was a double ouch, because I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Tar, um, Tar actually had a decent amount of people when I went to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was, uh, when I say decent, for a Tuesday night, which is probably the reason why people were at it, because it's five, $5, $5 Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> um, there was about 10 to 12 people, which is, uh, it's not the best crowd I've ever seen in an indie film, because I've sat through King's Speech and Lincoln and a few others, and there wasn't a seat left. You and I and Darren went to see Black Klansmen. Oh, packed. Oh, oh, yeah, we had, we had to sit front row of the fucking pit. That was that was all that was left. We got the last two seats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, first of all, I will grant you your uh, your point about Bob Chapek. He did come in at a at one of the worst, if not the worst, uh, time in film history, and. Every every studio was in that same boat, and you saw Warner Brothers make that ridiculous mistake of mm-hmm. we're just going to throw our entire 2021 slate onto onto HBO Max, and then 2022 comes along and they start cutting things. And well, that that was because of a shift in ownership. Uh, but half the directors from the 2021 films were like, um, "How come I'm finding out about this?" Uh, when I opened up the Hollywood Reporter website this morning. Yes, that is why I bought you the Writer's Tears whiskey. <laughs> I'm like, you're going to need this entire bottle to get through the Warner Brothers shakeup. Yeah, uh, just about. Um, it was it was crazy. It was a crazy time. And a lot of studios made mistakes. But I think Bob Chapek made more than his fair share. Mm-hmm. And um, he, you know, he was pushing streaming to the point where he was abandoning theatrical almost altogether. Well, Think about how many how many Disney films came out last year, this past year. What, three Marvel films, Lightyear. Mm. And oh, and Strange World, which opened up this weekend to really low box office and virtually no advertising for it from the last month. I know, I saw one trailer for it earlier on when it was announced and that was mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and Everything else went straight to streaming. You had Turning Red. You had, um, oh God, what else came out this year? <laughs> turning, uh, honestly, Turning Red is probably my one of my leads for uh, best of the year for animation. Oh wow! Yeah, that. Uh, I Del mean, there Poros, were a bunch Pinocchio. of. That's oh well, that's not Disney. Um, yeah, I know. But we did have a Pinocchio film hit Disney Plus though. Ooh, it was not good. I didn't watch it. Don't. Okay. Good. <laughs> I mean, if you maybe if you want, but it's nothing. I would if 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 you really have a precious two hours and you have want something to watch. That's not. That's what not, I will no, go to. No. No. If you have like, eh, I got two hours, <laughs> then maybe. 
<laughs> no, no, my my hours are kind of precious, so I'm very picky at this point. It, it's weird because we're seeing, you know, streamers are still investing so much money in in content. And I hate kind of using that word content because it sounds very clinical, but in in television shows, in um, in films. And they I don't think any of them have really started to turn that corner and started showing profit yet. Uh, but they're continuing to build their libraries. And I think we're, ho- I'm hoping we're going to see a shift. Um, this week, mm-hmm. Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel from Ryan Johnson, yeah. is in theaters for one week from Netflix. And then in a month, goes straight yeah. to stream. Then it disappears and goes, but I'm, you know, I'm seeing anecdotally people talking about, yeah, I went to see Glass Onion. Theater was packed. It's only in 600 screens, and it's going to be like the number three box office movie this weekend. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, if Netflix had doubled that, put it on 1,200 screens, given it a decent, solid, wide release, maybe leave it in theaters for a couple of weeks, they would have made a lot more money. Yeah, And I don't think what you know what they could have theoretically made was going to be offset or be less than the amount of money that they think they're going to get out of this film driving subscribers or keeping subscribers around on the streaming service for when it debuts on December 23rd. Yes, they could be making more money. Um, But I understand exactly what they're doing. They give you a taste. They let the word of mouth spread Mm -hmm. of how good it is. And, and then, it is good. And then come Christmas, you have families sitting around. Maybe some of them have Netflix. Maybe some of them don't. But it'll become a group thing. People watching it together during the holiday season. Mm-hmm. And um, I did hear uh, a few months ago, Netflix was thinking of raising their price a little bit again. Um, yeah, they're doing the ad tier. Yeah. HBO's already started doing an ad tier. Yeah. Because I was over at my girlfriend Chusey's a few weeks ago, and she was watching Doctor Who, and in the middle of it, an ad started up. I went, what the hell? She goes, oh, you don't have ads? I'm like, I didn't know they had ads. She goes, I paid for the the lower mark. I'm like, okay. I, well, <laughs> We hopped in on it when it first, when HBO yeah. first started up, so... Like, we only had the one tier, and that's we're actually in the highest tier. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, for some people, you know, if they only have, you know, a limited budget for entertainment things. Then it works. That's, yeah, yeah, that's worked. And I can see that. And, um, you know, and I see where also, you know, like Netflix is kind of trying to cut down on password sharing. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if we started seeing some of that from some of the other streamers. Well, here's which would suck. Well, here's an issue <laughs> that I I have a problem with there when it comes to password sharing. Hmm. A lot of times when you have password sharing, it's more of a case of three or four people in the same household. In the same household. So, mm-hmm. like for example, my um, my husband and I have one that we share with you know our two stepsons one half of the time he's he's at his mother's mm-hmm. two weeks out of the month out the of other the, on the other side of town yeah 
The other one is in his first year of college. We on the still, other side of the state. On yeah. the other side of the state. Yes. But it's still part of our um, family. It's not, yeah, it's not extended family. It's very strong immediate family. Mm-hmm. So are, is Netflix telling me that if I am using my Netflix on my phone, I can't use my husband's password for our television. Are you like, I yeah. don't understand Do how that. Account? I, I'm not sure how that works either. Yeah. I don't know how they differentiate or how they figure out who is what. Um, it's just very confusing yeah. to me. And I mean, the rollout on that is kind of weird. And I guess everybody's just kind of like, well, we'll see what happens. And if we get hit, we'll figure it out then. Which is not a great way to leave your customers. No, because at all. If they start, you know, shutting down, you know, not being able to log into your Netflix and you're like, hey, honey, Netflix is is giving me some trouble. I'll just change the password and you try it again. It doesn't work. And you're like, uh, what's going on here? Next thing you know, Netflix is going to have a lot of people just deciding, you know what? I'm just going to cut my service completely. Yeah. It, It comes down to them calculating more people are going to. I mean, they have like the, I think they were talking, and I honestly, I can't remember if they actually implemented this or not. They were talking about how if you were sharing, say, with your son at college, mm-hmm. your stepson at college, um, he could get a kind of like a associated uh, subscription to yours, but he'd be, have to pay like $5 a month or something like that. I can't remember. They were talking about that at some point. The um, smartest but, thing I I think to do would be create like like Spotify does. They do a family plan. So for like Spotify, you could have like three or four people on an account and it's 15 bucks a month. And that's mm-hmm. like, that's kind of what I pay for, you know, uh, uh, HBO. So imagine, okay, we're going to do a, a family plan for Netflix and it'll allow you f- four people. And uh, I don't even know what the prices is on Netflix anymore because that's one I, I don't cover in the house. <laughs> um, and instead of paying 12 bucks, you're paying 16. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what I pay, but it, you know, obviously it's automatically deducted. And I also, ha- I still have a DVD plan. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? There are still films that are not... Cubes. 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 Yes, my my friend Jason Sherry's uh, office comedy set in Scranton before The Office, uh, a film called Cubes that is available on Netflix, and and I walk through the end of it. Uh, (laughs) Um... No, uh, there's a lot of films that aren't available on any streaming service, but are still available on physical media. Again, it's it's kind of like that shrinking of libraries. When was the last time you used your, your DVD plan through Netflix? I have a Netflix disc right up there on top of the to-watch pile. When did you get it? Um, okay, actually, I got it a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's uh, the Nick Cage movie, Knowing, which... Why? It's a horrible movie! A friend of mine who used to write for the site uh, many years ago, uh, Mike, who has subsequently passed away, I was rereading some of his old stuff a little while back, and he he really liked the movie, and he made a convincing argument for me to check it out, because I had never seen it. And so I kind of just threw it onto my Netflix uh, list, 
and um, it was the next one that showed up. But um, you know, so so I was like, okay, and now then he's making me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, um, but you know, it kind of arrived just as I needed to start watching and doing all of my 2022 catch up for uh, critics circle voting uh, in a couple of uh, weeks. Actually, I think our first round of nominations is uh on the second so this coming week actually i need to have most of my stuff watched mm-hmm. and it's been it's been a vicious vicious couple of uh uh weeks trying to catch up with a lot of stuff um, a lot of great stuff and um but i did find time though because we started watching this on thanksgiving, thanksgiving day and then um after you left i was had all intents of sitting down and watching like two movies and then going to bed. And Netflix kind of hooked us in with it. Yeah, I just kept watching all the way through to the end of their new series, Wednesday, which is an Adams Family kind of spinoff featuring uh, daughter Wednesday Adams uh, on her way to a private school of mystery and spooky and ookiness. Done by Tim Burton. Yep. As the uh, he's the executive producer on that, he directed like four of the eight episodes. Yeah, and can we talk about how it has such Miss Peregrine vibes? <laughs> I was gonna say Miss Peregrine. There's a, I would say a little bit of Harry Potter in there. There's a little bit of the X Men in there, and the fact that all the kids at the school are all like have supernatural abilities. I didn't even think about X Men, but you're right. <laughs> Kind of yeah. the mutants as the yeah. outcasts versus the normies. Is exactly. Kind of yep, yep. Mutants. That's yeah. exactly the vibe I was getting from that. Yeah, good point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but overall, I found it absolutely delightful. It was a lot of fun. And I'm just going to come out and say it. Jenna Ortega is going to be a star. Oh. She is incredible in this. And I know she's been making white waves for for quite a while um particularly in like the horror area she was in scream and x just this year um but this is going to this i her performance is wednesday goes beyond the horror genre uh, this is going to hit kids it's gonna hit teenagers mm-hmm. you know parents who kind of grew up with like the the 90s version of Adam's family the the um the older part of our generation who grew up with the original I think can somehow mm-hmm. appreciate this on uh, weekday afternoon reruns yes watching that over the summer on our 13 channels of cable Ooh. <laughs> uh, um yeah there it definitely even like reaches back to them um especially in the scene, and you said it's been all over TikTok. I've seen it a little the bit dance. on Twitter. The dance, yes, where to Wednesday does that. Muck by the Cramps, which is epic. And Wednesday does this really herky jerky kind of dance, and some of that stuff relates all the way back to what Lisa Loring was doing as the actress who played Wednesday in the TV I series. I saw that. Um, actually, Jenna Ortega choreographed that dance herself. And she did it by watching a lot of videos of goth kids from the 80s dancing My around. People. Um, <laughs> particularly, there's a, a move that she pulled from Susie Sue. And uh, she, she was just like, uh, it was something I was kind of passionate about trying to do on my own. Mm-hmm. And it's it's amazing. Delightfully bonkers. <laughs> I, 
it, it's just her eyes. I, I swear, I tried to count the amount of times she actually blinks through this freaking show. Not many. I didn't catch really any. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's terrifying. Her eyes practically follow you. I counted more smiles than blinks. <laughs> <laughs> and there's not a lot of smiles either. No. Um, and honestly... But does you always somehow feel... Like, you know exactly what she's thinking, even when she is more emotional. Mm -hmm. She's her face is pretty much stone cold, but you can see something behind her eyes. Oh, yeah. Every single time. It's it's an incredibly subtle performance. And um, and as she delivers, like, you know, all like the zinger Wednesday, you know, zinger lines. Yeah. And we've talked we talked about this um, where. She delivers them in such a way where, you know, you don't know if she's serious or if she's being sarcastic. And it's a fine razor's edge between those two. And it's delightful. And because it, it throws everybody around her off balance. Yes. And she, every single one is perfectly written. Every single one is perfectly delivered. And it's just Great moment after great moment in this show. I know. And the supporting cast. Catherine Zeta-Jones as Morticia Adams. Mm -hmm. uh, Luis Guzman as... Um, Gomez. Gomez. <laughs> Who, Fred Armisen as Uncle Fester. Fred Armisen. Uh, I don't think I've seen him throw himself into a role <laughs> and just I'm going to be as weird as possible and embrace how gonzo this thing i is. heard he really wanted this role and he's so good in it and oh he's only God. in it for one episode but man he, i want more of him as great as jenna ortega is in this whole thing he almost steals that episode from her mm -hmm. yeah and i mean she's jenna ortega is going up against like gwendolyn christie who's amazing she's fantastic um you know and she's going up against, you know, a lot of actors and really just like holding her own there. And did you notice how they cast like everyone who is like super freaking tall to make her seem like a child? <laughs> like, okay, Gwendolyn Christie is what, 6'4"? Something like that, yeah. And then she's wearing heels for most of the damn show. Mm -hmm. And then you have Jenna Ortega and her little loafers and her pigtails standing next just completely the height dynamic is very interesting because Wednesday always seems more in control of every scene and every moment than the adults do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's that's another thing. You know, she just has this presence in every 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 moment mm -hmm. that is what you need for this character because. Everything is basically, even when we're not seeing stuff, you know, where she is, everything is basically her viewpoint and it's contempt of, of the entire world and existence <laughs> is a burden. Um, and at the exact same time, you feel vindicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> the amount of times that I've sat around and like, oh, I just hate people. <laughs> That's my inner Wednesday going. The first three emojis that I think of you. That come to mind are rope, shovel, hole. It's just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all we, we've all had those moments 
And and I want to also give out uh, some props to Emma Myers, though, as her roommate, Enid. Who is the anti-Wednesday that works yeah. so well to yeah, her. If, if you were to draw a diametric opposite of Wednesday, <laughs> it's, this, it's this brightly dressed, perky, uh, multicolored haired, um, <laughs> outgoing. Werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Jenna actually said that she, that Emma's uh, character Enid, is the sunshine to Wednesday's dark cloud. <laughs> that's that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. And um, her roommate and best friend. <laughs> yeah. Now, for everything I did love about this show, the big overall arcing mystery through the eight hours of this of the series, mm-hmm. I feel I kind of had it at least partially pegged by episode four. Uh, I did too. Okay. Because uh, by the time the big reveal happened, I was just like, well, duh. But then on top <laughs> of it, it, it all be, it all came down to who they cast in that role. Yeah, possibly. And I hope that's not a spoiler. Um, well, when you uh, just in, in general, is a big rule of thumb. If you see a big name um, kind of sitting there playing a minor character, like a supporting character during a mystery, like... They're going to have a bigger role towards the end. Exactly. It's it's it's, it's the murder she wrote rule. <laughs> yeah, like you kind of you can kind of guess who the baddie is by who hasn't been used, who is a big name. You can't just toss them off to the side. Mm-hmm. The, you you know at some point they're going to become involved in the finale in a bigger way. Yeah. Um. And usually it but, does the antagonist. <laughs> But there is, there are some other twists and turns in there, a few red herrings. I was like, that had me second guessing what I thought. So um, even if you do have it, think you have it figured out, you know, just watch the whole thing. It's still a fun ride. I will, I will admit. um, I mean, and you don't get to Uncle Fester till episode seven. So you have to hang in there for that. And if you have watched all the way through seven, you might as well watch the last episode. (laughs) But the, um, the final, uh, that final major reveal is actually a two-parter. And I only guessed half of it. Same here. So that's that's what really kind of threw me for a loop. That's that's the bit I was not expecting. Yeah. Um, But on the other hand, though, um, we are celebrating uh, this year, and I think this month, an anniversary. Yes, we are. Another girl, another little girl that kind of could remind me as a proto Wednesday Adams. Yes, <laughs> yes, actually, um, uh, we're talking about Natalie Wood's character in, of course, the classic Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, <laughs> which is what seventy five. I never really made that connection till just now. I, neither did I. The second you started to say that, I was like, "Oh yeah, she's really practical. She doesn't dry. She she's dry. She's not prone to flights of of imagination or fantasy." Or, yeah, <laughs> she, she she has bits of Wednesday Adams in her. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I think if Santa Claus hadn't come and showed up, she may have turned into a Wednesday. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Thank you, Santa. Yes. But anyways, classic film. Yes. And available on Disney Plus right now. 
uh, yeah, after we've crapped on Disney Plus and Netflix, we, we're reviewing two of their things. <laughs> that was not the plan. No. But it's beautiful. That's how it works out on this, this show. Uh, honest to God, Disney and Netflix did not pay us to boost their profits. <laughs> Certainly not, uh, but we're open to talking. No, um, <laughs> no. I'm down for a negotiation. Yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> um, anyway. But I have integrity. But <laughs> this is where, and I, I confess this to you as I was making something for us to eat before we... Uh, yes. Before, I, I had never seen Miracle on 34th Street before. <laughs> and it's, it's, okay, first of all, I don't know why, uh, it just wasn't a Christmas movie in our house growing up. And then... I don't know. Once I hit my 20s, I didn't think about it. <laughs> and uh, working in retail, I had a very long history of just not liking anything Christmassy all that much. Yeah, except for Except for between like the 23rd and the 26th of December. The way I... What? One day. You give yourself one day? I give myself about three days. But no, um... When I was growing up, yes, I did have both versions of Miracle on 34th Street on in the house. This one, as well as the remake in the 90s with Richard Attenborough, which I am, it's not as good as the original, mm -hmm. but I still rather enjoy it. Okay. Um, but one of the big movies that was in my household a lot was Home Alone. And I will never forget... Every single time, you know, Kevin McAllister is going around, Mom, where are you guys? He turns on the television in the kitchen, and it's the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade sequence from Miracle on 34th Street, which always mm -hmm. kind of led me to go, okay, now i got to go watch Miracle on 34th Street. <laughs> and the voice of Piglet, Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, <laughs> trashed. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I mean, this movie opens with, you know, there's there's some great New York footage. Some of this was absolutely shot in Hollywood, but there's some great New York location stuff. And the thing, it opens with that shot of 34th Street and Kris Kringle walking up the mm -hmm. sidewalk. And I realized we've walked up that sidewalk. Many number times. of times. Yeah. Number of times. Usually when we're at New York Comic Con on the way back to the path train. Or and because I need to go to Macy's on 34. Yes, or you're like, I need to pick up something at Macy's. Okay. And um just to see how different it was. I mean, it's still all stores there, but it now it's like an old navy and um mm -hmm. all those other stores that are across the street there. And you know, right around the corner being um uh the Hotel Pennsylvania. And then, you know, a block further back, basically where their cameras seem to be set up, is now where Madison Square Garden is. But that was not there. And there, they, no. have a, they have a reverse shot later on in the movie, like when he's going to see the mayor, quote unquote, and they're actually taking him to Bellevue. You can look back down that street and you can see on the left hand side where Madison Square Garden would have been, will be in the future, but it's all, mm. you know, tall buildings and stuff. So, just from that little standpoint, I'm like, wow, what a time capsule. And this is such a great movie, though. Well, it's it's also a time capsule in a way of talk. I mean, God, uh, they go into the rivalry between Macy's and Gimbel's. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's it's not in the film very long. But that was a major, major department store rivalry. And that both stores kind of went along with, especially Macy's, that Macy's went along with this whole thing, this script, which at it's very, okay, it's very anti-capitalism. Yeah. Which, okay, I'm fine with that because, you know, you know, peak capitalism, I have issues with we'll leave it at that um but i as i was doing some research on this you know last night after i watched it you know i was trying to dig around remember how it came out a few years back that um it's a wonderful life was investigated by the uh the fbi because of supposed communist uh themes and ideas hidden in the movie yeah this one too no Really? Really. I am absolutely shocked that there Wait, was nothing what? about that in this movie. Because I'm sitting here watching it going, okay, this whole scene with uh, Chris and the uh, 17-year-old uh, floor sweeper here, um, that, that certainly should have been a red flag for the FBI. In, you know, Just the, toss it on the floor. In the, <laughs> I get tired of sweeping up dust. <laughs> in that whole paranoid 50s era, I was really shocked that, that I couldn't find a reference to to that now it maybe was and maybe they no one's ever stumbled across those files to release them out to the public but i was kind of a little surprised oh i i love how it can be perfectly anti-capitalism with um macy's and gimbal's agreeing to help chris kringle get an x-ray machine for his friend as a christmas present Mm -hmm. like the coming together but at the exact same time later on when macy Mr. Macy is up on the witness stand at the courthouse and he's being asked if he thinks Chris is the one and only Santa Claus. We get the newspaper clipping of uh, R.H. Macy admits his Santa is a fraud and he's worried about how it's going to make him oh, look. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because, you know, he's uh, he's obviously a very practical man and a very pragmatic man. And he makes a pragmatic decision on the stand to say, yeah, I believe he's Santa Claus. And um yeah. Oh, spoilers for a 75-year-old movie. And, <laughs> and um, I, I was kind of like, okay, this is interesting because this is kind of complex. It's funny, but it's certainly making a point mm-hmm. here as well. And I was like, oh, wow. this. I mean, people watch this as a nice, oh, it's a nice happy movie and it's about Christmas and it's about Santa and it's about believing. Uh, there's a lot more going on here, I think. Yeah. Oh, just just how they win the court case by using our U.S. mail <laughs> the, system. You didn't know most, how it ended. So. I, I knew that it ended with, you know, all these letters from kids being dumped on the judge's desk. On the I judge's want them bench. right here on my desk. Yes. And they, so they sure? dumped 5,000 letters on his desk. And I, I just thought that was kind of like, well, if all these kids believe, then you should believe too. And that should be enough. But to actually loop it into, well. A branch of our federal government. The post office. Only delivers mail to the actual person, and these are directed addressed to Santa Claus, and we're delivering them. They delivered them right here to us, so he must be Santa Claus. That's according to the government. Is such a <laughs> funny thing. It, I, I honestly laughed. I burst out laughing at the audaciousness of it. It's a little cynical, <laughs> which it's is absolutely up your alley. cynical. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> cynical. It's it's like aha. It's it's just twisting everything and forming a weird chain of logic. Uh, well, if you do this and this and this and this, obviously, it's almost 
the the post Taking office a- is there there's a law that they cannot willfully misdirect mail <laughs> and they all delivered them here <laughs> so therefore he must be santa claus <laughs> it's it's so del- it's it's cynically fun <laughs> it's it's like aha you know using your own system against you in a way mm-hmm. that that really appealed to me and i was like yeah this is awesome <laughs> and, and the fact that the judge is coming up for re-election so he's so worried about how this um how this court case could completely just ruin his damn mm-hmm. career and they're like if you go back out there and you s- claim that there is no such thing as santa claus you're and, screwed <laughs> y- y- i won't even be able to get you on the on the ballot ticket mm-hmm. yeah and of course that was um you- William Frawley, who yeah. plays Fred Mertz on I Love Lucy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of just a number of amazing character actors. Yes. But let finish your thought, and then we're going to hit those oh, characters. Oh, my favorite my favorite line in the entire movie comes in that, out of that scene is, if you do that, you'll count on getting two votes. Yours and that district attorney's out there. <laughs> district attorney's a Republican. <laughs> Walks out like, oh, shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And the district attorney, if you didn't like his character here, if you thought he's a jerk and a creep, um, that's uh, actor Jerome Cohen. And you can watch him get shot as Miles Archer in the Humphrey Bogart Maltese Falcon. I've only seen Maltese Falcon, I think, twice. Okay. Just not, you know, it's not one of my favorites. I know, I know. But um, his Miles Archer is also kind of a creep, too. So so it's kind of fun to watch him get shot. And um, Maureen O'Hara is delightful here, by the way. This this is a great Maureen O'Hara performance. I mean, I'm more partial to her in like At Swords Point, where she's the a quiet man for me. Okay, also good. Um, but here, she, you know, something you don't often see either in movies of this era: a divorced woman with a career and a child and a child. Yeah, and they're just fine and dandy without a man in their life. Yeah. And uh, half of me is like. How did that get past the Hayes <laughs> office? <laughs> well, I, I think there is a there is a, a point to be shown here is that even at that time, um, it, it was a reality for a lot of people. And uh, they never actually state whether or not she – well, no, they did state that she was divorced. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Very soon after um, yeah. you know, the, the child was born. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I like how they play her character as turning bitter because she believed in love. She believed in fairy tales. And then she grows up and sees the world as it truly is and, and loses that, that wonderment, that yeah. life. She thought she had her happily ever after and mm-hmm. it didn't last that long. No, not very long. It's back in that time it wasn't just marriage that was the happily ever after it was the life that came from having a a kid from having a family from having a home and And that uh, was something very much reinforced by hollywood mm -hmm. and and partly due to uh the hayes office and imposing you know the production code and family values yeah family values you know you can't have women having kids out of wedlock i mean so they you know well she did have a kid but they were married and then he quickly left and honestly that's a that's a nice cheat yeah it's a good cheat 
And honestly, and if that wasn't there, they could have gone just with, yeah, I had a child out of wedlock and I'm still trying to make everything work. And this guy promised to marry me and he, and he disappeared or whatever. And you, you still would have had the same movie, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, no, I, I think you definitely could have. Um, they probably had to fix that, yeah, for the Hayes Code. Mm-hmm. But there's that scene well, I mean, where— I it does, mean, it, it does end with them becoming y- a family. Yes. But, um, no, the, there's that scene, that wonderful scene of Maureen O'Hara's that I really need, need to mention, um, which is right after Mr. Gailey takes Susan to see Santa Claus, and she's tearing into him. And kind of regaling what happily ever after could do to her daughter, and that, mm-hmm. and and he says we were talking about Susan. Yes, there, <laughs> she has this look on her face. You feel her anguish and her her pain from years and years and years ago, mm-hmm. and then really quickly she snaps into business mode of. I, she, regardless, Susan's my responsibility and I need to bring her up as I see fit. Yes. And I was just like, that is a woman you don't want to mess with no. when you come, when you come to her <laughs> cub. Like, it, she's very strong and not in the type that you usually see in mm-hmm. these period films. So it was very impressive to oh, me. Oh, yeah. And, um, uh. Can we talk about the the whiskers moment? Because that's brilliant. <laughs> Not with mm-hmm. Susan, with uh, when Mr. Gailey is rooming with Chris Kringle. Yeah. Yes, it's it. I ne- growing up, I never had that thought in my head. Did you ever think about that as Not a kid? Not really. No, no. But I I don't think I had. I'm trying to think here. None of the adults around me had beards. I think, wait, our one neighbor, my my friend Todd's dad, had a beard. But it wasn't, like, bushy and long. It was, you know, fairly well trimmed and short, maybe, maybe about an inch long. I'm trying to remember. Well, uh, beards sorry, for Dr. The long- Pettibon, I can't remember. <laughs> um, well, beards for the longest time weren't the fashion. No, no, especially not in you know, was, the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and definitely not in the 30s and 40s. It was yeah. all about the, the mustache or keeping it clean-shaven. And that I think that's how it's always been. And mm-hmm. I think beards, to a certain extent, were either seen as something for the old or they were a symbol of an Eastern culture. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so for the longest time, I mean, it was a lot of just clean-shaven or mustaches. Um yeah, generally it was like old men had beards. Yeah. Like in any like 40s movie or 30s movie where they had like a gathering of old people, it was just old guys with gray beards. <laughs> and until like, you know, until you start counting backwards to about 50 and then, you know, it stopped. Yeah. It was always like, here's the be- boardroom of the guys who run the company and they're all old men with beards. Yeah. No, that's true. Mm-hmm. Usually balding, maybe a little hair on the side, a mustache that kind of curled, and then a long triangle beard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a fun, it's a fun little moment, and um, Edwin certainly seems to be like, oh no, the cold air helps it grow, and you know he has a little fun with it. Yeah. Um, there's some great, great supporting actors in this thing. Oh my god, yes. Uh, well, first of all, down in the mail room. Jack Albertson, a.k.a. Uh, Grandpa from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. 
shit, that's who that was. I was watching it last night going, why does he look so damn familiar? Well, this is like 30 years yes. before this. So, <laughs> of is. course, I wasn't able to catch on that that was who that was. Um, wow. I, there should be one that you recognize, <laughs> uh, if not by name, by face. Porter Hall, who played um, uh, Mr. Sawyer. He did look familiar. And He's I in couldn't... Double Indemnity. One of your favorites. That's why. <laughs> oh, I hated him in Double Indemnity. Oh, he's a he. A, by all accounts, was a very lovely man, but he played a lot of creeps. Yeah, <laughs> like Sullivan's Travels, Ace in the Hole. Uh, if you see his mug show up, you I'm know from he's, Medford, Medford, Oregon. Yeah, <laughs> that's who. If that you see was. his face show up in a movie, you're gonna be like, I'm gonna not like you by the end of this movie. <laughs> um, the one I was happy to see. Um, the mother of the first kid on Santa's on. Yes. Um, who was that? That's Thelma Ritter. This is like her first big break. Thelma Ritter was a great character actor through the 50s, 40s, 50s and into the 60s. Yeah, I know the name and um, I can't think of a movie that she's ever done. I recognize the face. Uh, well, she was nominated six times for supporting actress for an Academy Award, um, including um, her first one was for All About Eve. And, That's right. She mm-hmm. was she was um uh, uh Betty Davis's like uh I don't want to call her maid assistant or yes, whatever yeah. it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and she's in Rear, Rear window. window and um Spitz, Pillow Talk. Yep. She Damn. her first four Academy Award nominations were all in a row. And you know, she had six total altogether, never won. And I think that's a damn shame. Her yeah. List is yeah, she has a great whoa. filmography. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm having fun just watching your, your eyes get like progressively larger with each new title. Titanic with Barbara Stanwyck, mm-hmm. Daddy Long Legs, Misfits. Like, she's got some good stuff here. Yeah. And I don't think she's all that well remembered these days. And I find that a shame. She was the first woman, uh, she was the first, well, one of the first two actresses to tie at the Tony Awards. She and Gwen Virden were nominated for lead um, for lead actresses in the play um, New Girl in Town in 1958. And Gwen Virden is not someone you easily tie with. No. <laughs> you you hope for a distant second. And <laughs> and they tied. And there I think there's been like eight or nine other ties in Tony Award history since then, but she and Gwen Virden were the first. And, you know, it was, I did not know she was in this at all. And, like, the second she shows up, I was like, ooh, <laughs> Thelma Ritter, yes! I was all happy. And, you know, it's 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 a small role, but she makes the most of it, I think. Uh, you know, she's kind of the haggard mom who is just like, oh, God, Christmas is killing me. And, <laughs> you know, and in the two scenes she has, one with Chris Kringle and then one with um, uh, Mr. Shellhammer, the floor walker in the toy department, <clears throat> they, um, you know... You can see like how she's kind of like changed, how her attitude changed over just those two scenes. Yeah. And it's it's a nice little part. She brings the most to it. And it's a great hint as to what's in store for her career, I think. And I I've been thinking of she's been on my short list for um uh Oscar's Greatest Mistakes uh a column for uh, the academy award season i think this might be the year i actually wrote i was it. just thinking this kind of reinforced you wanting to yeah. do that piece now yeah i mean every year i write a couple of uh p- 
pieces about uh well where maybe the academy awards missed something or it's a shame that they couldn't you know have awarded this person or what have you and um yeah i think this is the year i have to do thelma ritter now (laughs) bless her yeah i'm um just kind of scrolling through and there's so many good Mm -hmm. people in here um gene lockhart as uh judge harper Mm -hmm. who was great in the original christmas carol Oh yeah, yeah. He was he was great in that, um, and I'm actually looking right now at uh, the floor su- floor sweeper. I can't remember his uh, his freaking character name. Character name, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but it's Alvin Greenman, and he went on to actually do. He he worked a lot on like as script supervisors on stuff hmm. according to his his filmography. He didn't do a lot of like acting roles, which is a shame because I I found him perfectly sympathetic and you know good in the role here. Yeah, it, it looks like he went on and did like a lot of script supervising stuff. Um, it's kind of imp- it's weird and impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was more during his later years. But, um, but yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, it's a heartwarming story. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he was in the nineties. Uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. He came back to play a small role as a doorman. Oh, nice! Just, that just was nice that they yeah. had him. He was a script supervisor on the the original Karate Kid. Oh, wow. Um, and Airplane 2. Okay. And Roots the Next Generation. Like, he's got a hell of a... He was working up into the 80s. He's, yeah. He's not still with us, is he? Well... If but, he is, he's like 99. I don't think so at this point, but, um, like, that that movie was in... This remake was in, like, the late 90s. Yeah. So, Hearts of Fire, he script supervisor on that. Mm-hmm. Like, he's got a lot of stuff. He did some acting stuff in the 50s. Um, he was in Last Time I Saw Paris. Like, uh, it's, it's rather impressive. Not gonna lie. Rather yeah. impressive. Good. Yeah, sometimes you, you see character actors who do a few things and then they, they find something that disappear from being yeah. on screen and they're just behind the camera doing stuff. Yeah. So... That's nice, too. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, if you do have a chance to check this out, mm-hmm. go it, check this out. It is on Disney Plus right now. Yeah, and it's the perfect kind of film it for for the whole family. Um, and it starts at Thanksgiving and it ends at Christmas, so you can watch it anytime within the holiday season. Yeah, you got a few weeks here uh, yeah. of a window of opportunity. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. It really is perfect. But I think that's just going to wrap us up for this week. Again, Miracle on 34th Street, both the original and I believe the uh, the remake yes. are available on Disney Plus. And Wednesday is available on Netflix streaming. Remember, you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com. And we are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there, search and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're listening to, please leave a positive review because that always helps us connect with new listeners we'll be back next time with more uh, film news and reviews and that'll be all right here on the big picture podcast Mm -hmm.